What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a children's literature specialist, I'm all for books. But the reality is that in today's world, you can't escape electronic media. The constant stream of media surrounding children certainly creates some challenges for adults. Without a doubt, there are some very valid concerns about children's engagement with media. But even as we face these challenges, it is important to remember that there are some positive things about media as well. Take, for example, media's ability to teach children problem-solving skills. There is a wide range of children's television shows that allow children to solve hypothetical problems right along with their favorite characters. From everyday problems like sharing toys with friends to less common ones like how to deal with the death of a pet, seeing characters tackle these problems can help children develop confidence to solve their own problems. The benefits can go beyond personal problems as well. For example, one study showed that watching a mathematics-based television show led to improved performance for fifth graders in solving all kinds of mathematical problems. The effect here is also not limited to television. Video games also show some interesting connections to problem-solving skills. Another study found that playing computer games improved 14 to 16-year-olds' performance on computer-based educational tasks. So adults can connect to some of the positives of electronic media by building on the problem solving they portray. Taking these teachable moments and extending them to the real world by watching or playing together and then discussing the concepts or issues encountered afterwards creates adult-mediated media time that may be just the thing children need to make them the critical innovators of tomorrow. And that's a little something to think about, straight from Rachel's world. Did you know that poetry is great for kids? Poetry can offer imagery, emotion, rhythm, and even prepares them to be better readers. Today, Rachel talks to children's literary expert Sylvia Vardell about the importance of poetry in kids' lives. Sylvia Vardell is the co-author of the Poetry Friday Anthology and is a professor at Texas Women's University in the School of Library and Information Studies. She also teaches courses in literature for children and young adults. Here's Rachel with Sylvia. Today on our show, we're talking with Sylvia, who is a poetry expert. And I am so excited to talk to you today, Sylvia, because poetry is one of my all-time favorite things. So to start out, tell us a little bit, how did you develop a love of poetry? Well, I love talking about poetry, too, so I'm so pleased to be invited. Thank you so much. And the roots of my interest are actually very deep in my own childhood. Um, I grew up in a family where our first language was German. My parents were both from Germany and moved to the, the States as adults, so I was read to in German and spoke German and then started learning English from the playground and television and then eventually, of course, in school, too. And so some of my first exposure was playground chants and jump rope jingles and mother goose and nursery rhymes and th- 
after many, many years passed, and I was uh, a scholar of children's literature and a teacher and professor, I started thinking about, now, where did my interest come? And that's when I finally realized. It took me years to figure out, oh, poetry was how I learned English. And so I'm constantly an advocate for sharing poetry with kids who don't know English already, because it does provide such a wonderful model of the music of the language. And it offers the predictability of rhyme and the fun nonsense of, of Mother Goose and strong imagery and emotion. It's just, it offers so much for someone who's just learning the language. So I love that as an academic, as a parent, and as a person who loves poetry. That's wonderful. And I think you mentioned something really important. I think sometimes when people think of poetry, they think of the highbrow poetry, Shakespeare and their sonnets or something like that. But poetry really can be these rhymes and chants and very a very basic part of childhood. So can you tell us a little bit more about the scope of poetry and what you would consider to fall in that category? That's a great question, too. And you'll get different answers depending on whom you ask. I have probably the broadest definition of poetry because I want to invite everyone to the poetry party. And I do include things like uh, Mother Goose and Nursery Rhymes, which is most children's first introduction to rhyme. Uh, in fact, um, a literacy advocate and author named Mem Fox says that children who know eight nursery rhymes by the time they're age four will more likely be good readers because that structure of poetry provides this um, knowledge of how language works. So I include Mother Goose and things that kids yell and chant on the playground, folk rhymes and that kind of thing. Um, all kinds of nonsense and jingles are part of, of what gives us a sense of how language works. They're playful, but I also like, you know, the, the, the more seriously published poetry for young people as well, of course, and there's more and more. Um, Where the Sidewalk Ends by Shel Silverstein really put poetry on the map for kids in a big way in the 70s. And it showed us that poetry could be irreverent and silly and break some rules and talk about taboo subjects. So that was kind of fun. It, poetry really became a way for children to celebrate childhood and not just enjoy beautiful language, but to enjoy how language could capture those feelings and experiences that are very much a part of growing up. And then poetry for young adults and adults, too, can be very accessible for young people if we share it with our own love and enthusiasm. Even Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost, you know, serious poetry for adults, is accessible to young people if shared in a way that is sort of open-ended and enjoying the music of language and talking about our, our feelings and responses. So I think poetry is a very broad category that includes a lot of different things, especially when you're talking about introducing children to the world of poetry. I couldn't agree more. I, I also adhere to that definition of this broad category. But I think in any of this category, one of the things that connects it, and you've mentioned this several times, is just the language and the music and the emphasis that the language puts in. So can we talk a little bit about what poetry does with language that maybe prose or other forms wouldn't necessarily do? Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, I think the music, that's often the word I use too, the music of poetry is part of what makes this genre so special. Even if it's not rhyming poetry, 
And sometimes that's a shock to young children that a poem cannot rhyme and still be a poem. The poet chooses each word very carefully, very purposefully. And um, the line breaks that form the poem that help you know how to breathe and pause and read and think as you read a poem out loud, all of that, the arrangement on the page, the, the use of white space which kids also just love. They love all the space on the page that makes the poem seem more accessible and understandable. All of that helps shape the poem um, so that uh, each word, each line has even more impact. And uh, you don't necessarily have to talk about all that with kids. Actually, I found they notice it without your explicitly addressing it. They find that structure of poetry really interesting, and they're sort of surprised that a writer can get away with just a few words and still call it a poem. Um, uh, whether it's rhyming or not, again, that arrangement, that structure, the, that language that we use to talk about stanzas and line breaks, all of that is very interesting to most kids. But I think their first introduction should always be hearing it, and savoring the sound of it, because a lot of poets really create some wonderful sounds in their poetry, and enjoying the words, unusual words or more usual words, and then kind of digging deep to talk about how it looks on the page and why did the poet do that and what does that make you feel. Um, to me, poetry, with just a handful of words, offers so much to enjoy and explore with kids. That's so true. There is so much out there. But interestingly enough, I think kids, like you said, have a natural affinity to poetry, but sometimes we lose that as an adult. So how can we kind of bridge that gap as adults to help our children maintain this beautiful natural affinity that they have to poetry? Yeah, that is so true. And it's so sad to me. That's that's one of the, the reasons I work very hard at, at creating resources for teachers, librarians, and parents to guide them in keeping that love of poetry alive, because I think we often default to approaches that were used on us that often focus on analysis. So um, how do we keep them? How do we keep that going is, I think, kind of two parts. One is lots of exposure. Um, often kids get lots of poetry in preschool and kindergarten, and then we drop the ball. And there isn't a lot of poetry shared on a regular basis throughout the school year until they get to high school. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a very serious endeavor with um, lessons that require us to look at symbolism and simile and metaphor and, uh, and analyze and critique a poem, which is fine. It's an important exercise, certainly, but it becomes a very odd exercise if you haven't read a poem in years. So I think parents can uh, can definitely fill that gap by simply sharing lots of poetry in, in a fun way, like um, for a birthday or, or holiday celebration, you know, simply at dinner time or bedtime, reading a poem out loud, taking turns. Poems invite lots of participation. So if there are uh, couplets, for example, you know, the parent reads the first one, the kids the second. You take turns back and forth, reading it in a sort of a back-and-forth way. Marianne Hoberman, a prize-winning poet, has created a variety of books like that called You Read to Me, I'll Read to You, where all the poems are arranged for participation. Or using a simple prop, like if a poem is um, about a, a subject, um, a frog, and you have a, a toy frog, a plastic toy frog to use, and you have an object that goes with the poem. 
kids are such kinesthetic learners. If you can have them hold or touch something that the poem is about or find the prop themselves that goes with the poem, that's another way to make it more concrete and engaging for kids. That's a wonderful way to bring that poem to great life. As we wrap up here in our conversation today, Sylvia, why don't you share with us just the maybe the one or two things that you think uh, parents or adults involved with children should remember about our conversation or about poetry in general? Just enjoy the language. If kids heard a thousand poems from birth to high school, they would have such a rich store of vocabulary and imagery and metaphor that would serve them so well in their, in their uh, reading and life and their understanding of language. Uh, that would be enough. Even if you'd never analyzed a single poem with them, just that rich exposure would be so powerful. Poetry is such a, a, a fun thing to share and so quick and easy and succinct. It doesn't take much time, but it has a lot of impact. That's why we share a poem for a wedding toast or a graduation celebration or a funeral, because poems capture so much of what we're feeling and experiencing as human beings. Such a perfect way to end our conversation today. Thank you so much, Sylvia. This has been wonderful. Oh, yay. Thank you so much. That was Rachel Wadham with Sylvia Vardell talking about how to engage children with poetry, helping them to become better readers. Thanks for joining us today for Worlds Awaiting. We all know people who cope with unique challenges, including the challenge of autism, which is very much on our minds these days. Join us now as Rachel talks to Wendy and Brad Wilcox, a father and daughter, about reaching children with special needs. Wendy shares her experience with her autistic son and how she's influenced his response to literacy. Brad Wilcox, an educator who works with challenged kids, also offers his insights. Here's Wendy and Brad with World's Awaiting host, Rachel Wadham. We're in studio today with Wendy, who has a child with special needs, and then also Brad, who's an educator who works with children with special needs. And we're going to talk a little bit about how do we reach these children that have these special needs and help them engage with their literacies. So, Wendy, tell us just a little generally about your son and what his challenges are, and then maybe a tip of one way that you connect with him to help him engage in literacy. Yeah, definitely. Um, My oldest son is definitely on the autism spectrum, and he's also speech delayed. He's had a hard time connecting socially with people, and he's had a hard time with language and understanding, comprehension, and everything has just been delayed. And so that makes it hard when you're talking about communication or literacy or reading because it just doesn't follow that natural pattern that so many people are used to. Um, So I've really had to be creative and come up with different ways to reach him. For example, he will not sit with me to read. I don't know if it's because he has a hard time sitting still or if the contact is too much for him, but I have a very hard time getting him to actually sit with me and read a book and let me turn the pages and talk with him about anything. But he loves to memorize, which I think most autistic children do, and they're very good at it. Um, And so one way, he likes the tablet, which is media that I know a lot of autistic children use and enjoy and saves their families. Everything on his tablet is educational. Everything is ABCs or songs he, he enjoys learning. And so I feel like it's been a good tool for our family. But in specifically with reading, I find that if I record myself on the little video icon on the tablet, 
reading a book and he finds it on the tablet. He will listen to the whole thing. He'll memorize the whole book. And then when I go to show him the actual book, he recognizes it. He'll let me read it with him a lot more willingly because he's memorized it and he can tell me what the words are. And so in in our case, we have found that reading on the tablet and allowing him to memorize it on his own has worked a lot better than traditionally having him sit down and try and read a book to him. Yeah, you know, the very thing that most children enjoy, and that's sitting on the lap of a mother or a father, is something that autistic kids don't gravitate to. That warmth, that relationship has to be built in other ways because they don't they don't take it through traditional paths. And so I I admire Wendy for the way that she found something that worked because it is vital. They have the same needs as other children to be surrounded by language and surrounded by literacies, but they often will fight that need. And you have to be able to find new ways to do it. And that's what Wendy's done. Well, and I think, too, they definitely have that same need. But even in some ways, I think they have more of a need to be surrounded with it. Because particularly with language delay, there's challenges there. And if they aren't even more surrounded by these kinds of things, it it makes a big difference. But I really admire as well the way you've used technology. Is there any other kind of solution that you have found that really help just expose your child to more a print environment? I think what has been helpful as well is when he's watching television, a lot of times we put on the subtitles so that there are words underneath the pictures and he can be, even if he's not reading it per se, he's seeing that the language has a written form. And specifically for autism, I would say we've learned, we didn't start this way and I didn't necessarily know, but he needs to see real people real faces, real expressions. And even in the media that we use as far as flashcards or books, if I can find pictures versus illustrations or or flashcards that show a real cow instead of a cartoon cow, those things have really helped him to connect pieces in the world that he was kind of missing. Well, and that goes along with what the research says because the research is telling us that one of the reasons that children who deal with autism, have a hard time making eye contact. That's one of the first signs that there may be issues. And one of the reasons is because our faces become hard for them to read. There's way too much input coming as we make expressions, as we talk to them in baby talk, the way that we do as adults, that sometimes that's a little too much input for them. And so they kind of shy away from it. And so that's a very normal thing that autistic children deal with and that parents need to be able to to, uh, work with kids so that they can connect with people. But this is one simple way that they can make that connection. That makes a lot of sense. And I know particularly with children with all kinds of special needs, it really, you just have to work with them and you have to be creative and, you know, try different things. So have you tried something, Wendy, that you don't think worked? I mean, how do you balance that? How do you explore and find things that work and then get rid of things that don't in yeah. this process? Well, it's hard because it's, at least with autism, I found that every single case is very individual. And so you can't blink it, say, oh, well, this worked for my kid. And so therefore it will work for yours. 
um, everyone would tell me, try sign language so that he could learn to speak with sign language. And he wouldn't pay attention to me at all. And he wouldn't give me the time of day. He wasn't interested. He didn't. We did all done, the sign for all done with eating since he was two months old. And he never still has not caught on to that sign and didn't care. And so people would keep telling me, use sign language and that'll, that'll help your communication. And for him in particular, it didn't help a whole lot. And people would tell me, use a picture schedule, you know, so that they know what to anticipate what's coming next. And now that he's almost five, a picture schedule is a little more helpful. Um, But as a younger child, it didn't do anything. And it was just more stress and work for me. And so it gets a little frustrating trying to weed out, you know, all the advice and all the suggestions and all the help. And they always say early intervention and get going really fast with speech therapy and do all these things, which is valid and good advice. But it's overwhelming as a mom. And so then when you're talking about, oh, and you need to get them reading and literacy. Oh, and you need to do these. Sometimes I would feel very overwhelmed. Well, I think it's interesting, too, Wendy, that you... You said that when he was younger, he had no interest in signing. And yet, before we started recording this this program, you were talking about how he's showing interest now in this little TV show. What's it called? So there's a show. I don't even know what channel it's on, but it's called Signing Time with Alex and Leah. And I get it on my Netflix thing. And it kind of drives me nuts because it's very overly animated and very hard as an adult to watch. But... My gosh, now that has become the best language thing for him ever because it's real people. There's a lot of music involved, and she'll teach it with the sign. And then there's simple things, and he's learned all about birthdays, which we have never had a normal birthday party yet because he didn't know what it was and he didn't care. And now this year, finally, he's telling me birthday party, blowout candles, open presents, all these things that has come specifically from this signing time show and so I just now want to write her letter and say thank you for teaching my child all this language that he won't learn from me and so yeah you find these things that have become helpful and it takes off. Well remember we were talking about the research and how a a real person they don't know what's coming next but when they watch a show over and over and over and over again then they can anticipate what's coming next, and that becomes a safe place. So we yeah. would never watch a TV program that many times, but autistic children will re-watch something over and over. Yeah, and I think that's even true for students without special needs. That kind of repetition is the same, the same thing. Um, in my instance, it was reading Nancy Drew over and over and over again. I mean, I read all of those books at least three times. And most people and librarians and teachers would say, oh, that's not quality literature. You shouldn't be reading that. But that's what helped me move forward. And so I think sometimes that repetition is critical for kids to have it again and again and again, and particularly with autistic kids. For me, it's songs on the radio. I want to listen to it so I can memorize the words and I'll listen to it over and over because I like it and they do the same thing because they like it and it's giving them some kind of input that's comfortable and it's language and it's an interaction and so I would just say cater a little bit even though it seems weird and even though it seems like other parents don't have to ride the elevator 90 times and they don't have to do these things over and over and over again but I've learned that the more I give in and kind of follow the lead of he likes these books okay we're going to get a million 
then he opens up more to me and is a little bit more willing to do what I need him to do later. They respond, these children respond to the familiar and they respond to routine. And so as we can build routines and we can make things familiar, then we give them an environment in which they can then find literacy in their own way. And that, that's a perfect way to end. Thank you both for sharing the challenges and the joys of about raising a special needs child. I know that some of that helped moms out there who are struggling, feeling overwhelmed themselves. So we appreciate both of you bringing your perspectives today. Thank you. That was Rachel Wadham here on Worlds Awaiting, talking with father and daughter Brad and Wendy Wilcox about helping her special needs boy develop an interest in learning. Let's finish up the show today with Sam Payne, storyteller, musician, and teacher, and also host of the Appleseed Tellers and Stories on BYU Radio. I asked him what some of his favorite books were growing up. I I was introduced very, very early on to uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. came to love those a lot. But the first book that I tackled on my own, you know, that, that was kind of a that was I, I felt like was kind of a big boy book, yeah, you know, was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and that just captured my imagination in a way that 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 little has since. And I even found I brought today, knowing you were going to ask about books I loved as a kid, I I brought my copy, and I mean you can see it's pretty chewed up here, but here's here's one of my favorite things about it. In the margins of the pages, there's a flip cartoon that I drew when I was a tiny little kid. And it's a picture, it's a cartoon of the great glass elevator bursting through the roof. Another book that I loved when I was a little kid was a book that my dad brought me. My dad was, you know, kind of a traveling folk singer and and he would come back with, you know, little gifts for us kids from his many travels. And he introduced me to the Moomintroll stories uh, from Tove Janssen. These are Finnish stories. And, and I like them partly because they're illustrated with these delightful little pictures and they're, they're filled with all kinds of crazy, delightful characters. And I was also kind of the only one in my school who knew about them, you know. So this was kind of my own little discovery. And, and, as I, and again, I brought with me the Finn Family Moomintroll book that I had when I was in third grade, you know, and in the margins of the of the book is another flip cartoon. This time it's Imperial walkers walking across the landscape and being fired upon by rebel spaceships. So, so I, there must have been a Star Wars right. so stuff I discovered, going on back then in right. the movies. That's right. So I discovered Finn Family Moomintroll about the same time as I discovered that's Star Wars. Wonderful. So that's, you know, 1977, But that's your life. So, that's yeah. your beginning. Yeah. My goodness. So it's a fun little artifact for these uh-huh. books to still exist on my shelf and kind of tell so much of the story of my childhood. Isn't that marvelous? Uh, I bought a new copy of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory <laughs> to read to my then eight-year-old. And I was surprised at how in the intervening years I might have come to think of that book as kind of, you know, nonsensical and, and even silly. So it was a really great experience that my eight-year-old and I had as well. And how did how did he respond? Oh, he loved it. Yeah. It, in fact, that was sort of the way in, you know, with, with all of my sons. There's been kind of a book that's the way in. Uh, with my oldest, it was, we read The Hobbit together and that was the way in. My second son loves the Percy Jackson novels, you know. It was fun for for the way in for my youngest son to be Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that I had loved so much as a kid. Tell us about how books have influenced. You're, you're a storyteller. You're a songwriter. You're a, a performer. You're, you're a teacher. You've been a principal. How uh, have books and reading influenced this path that you have taken? A child who knows how to read can discover really any 
aspect of the world that he wants, you know, or she wants. That it's 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 the way into everything, you know. And I I'm devoted to the notion that our our that 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 many of our greatest thoughts and many of the things we come to understand the most clearly about the way the world works and and its humans work, you know, is in is in stories that we create and put down on paper. I agree yeah. with that. And you look back and you go, I'm who I am now. I'm sure it came from many of the books that I read. Yeah. A lot of, you know, sort of the ideology that composes me. It kind of gets as I grow and, you know, function in the world, it gets a little bit muted, you know. But every once in a while, I'll go back to a book from my youth and I'll kind of read, I'll have this kind of flash of rediscovery of some idea that has since kind of taken root and spread and grown and changed a little bit. But every once in a while, I'll find the seed from which it sprang, you know, by going back to a book that I remember from my childhood. Sam Payne, host of the Appleseed Tellers and Stories on BYU Radio, talking about how books he read growing up have influenced his life. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.